When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I would say half of my best friends in that land are Palestinian. And that that is not mutually exclusive. You can stand and celebrate what God is doing in that land and love the Palestinian people. The continued existence of the people of Israel and the state of Israel is proof positive of the existence of the God of Israel. Most of those, I would argue all of those that hate Israel at the end of the day hate the God of Israel, hate the God of the Bible. Israel, that one word puts people on edge. So you're anti these people, or you hate so-and-so. No, I, I just said Israel. But here's the question for today. Why exactly are Christians seemingly obsessed with Israel? You might be watching this and your walls are already up. You're ready to go off in the comment section below. But how about instead, let's have an honest, thoughtful conversation about the Jewish state that afterwards, after you've genuinely listened, feel free to speak your mind. So to help us navigate this super delicate subject from a biblical perspective, we brought in the A-team. I'm serious. There might not be a person on the planet better equipped to unpack Christian support for Israel than my brother, Eric Stackelbeck. He's the host of like a hundred shows right here on TBN, but more than that, he's been there, he's seen it, he's studied it, he's lived it for years. My brother, how we doing? Hey, Rods, it is great to be with you, my friend. Thank you for that introduction. And you and I have been traveling this road together for over a decade now when it comes to Israel. We first met in Jerusalem, so it's coming full circle now, man. It's great to be with you. How many times have you been to Israel now? Close to 30. You may actually have me beat. I'm at exactly 30. I'm at exactly 30. I knew you were. Yes, I'm very close. I think I'm 27, 28 as of now, uh, but hopefully many more to come. So nearly 60 times between us. Obviously, we've invested a lot into this, and it's a very delicate, uh, land mining type, type conversation. So I want to do this respectfully and thoughtfully, and so it had to be you. So let me just get right to it. Why biblically, specifically biblically, why do Christians care so much? I think God's promises, or I know I should say, that God's promises to Israel, Raj, are just contained throughout the Bible from cover to cover. I mean, start out in Genesis. Think, of course, uh, many of us consider Genesis 12, 3 to be a foundational verse for Christian support for Israel, where God says to Abraham very clearly, I will bless those who bless you, meaning you, the Jewish people, and I will curse those who curse you. There's really no gray areas there. God is very black and white. And I think we see this borne out, Raj, throughout history. Look, the United States, for instance, talk about a tough one, a landmine to throw out there right away in this conversation that may get people talking. But uh, the United States, I believe, has been blessed more than any nation in the history of the world, largely because of its support for Israel and the fact that it has provided a safe haven to the Jewish people. So I think in terms of those blessing Israel, I think of Cornelius, uh, the Roman centurion. Talk about being blessed. He was the first Gentile follower of Jesus. Why did 
God Almighty choose Cornelius to be the first Gentile to, to essentially reveal the gospel to. The Bible says very clearly that Cornelius was a friend to the Jewish people. He blessed all of those in the land of Israel. I don't think God's choice of Cornelius to reveal the gospel to was a coincidence because of that fact. He blessed Israel and the Jewish people. He received a great blessing in return. And Rods, when I look at the cursing portion of this, hey, look, I think of the Philistines. I think of the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrians, Pharaoh, Haman, the Nazis, of course, and soon to be Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Iranian regime. All of those nations and entities and individuals which have persecuted Israel and the Jewish people have wound up in the ash heap of history. They're no longer with us, and yet against all odds, Israel, this tiny nation, the size of the state of New Jersey, continues to not only survive but thrive. When we're talking about biblical support for Israel, what I believe is a biblical mandate for followers of Jesus to stand with the world's one and only Jewish state. I think Genesis 12.3, hey, it's at the front of the book. It's the book of Genesis. I think Genesis 12.3 is a great place to start, and I know you and I will unpack more during our conversation here. Well, you know, I, uh, I initially got into the Israel space, as you know, from a more of a, a geopolitical uh, point of view, and the geopolitics are coming. We'll talk about it at the end. I know that's what everyone wants, to, everyone wants to hear. But the more that I've been involved in this space, the more that, and I read scripture, I'm like, oh my goodness, God is up to something wild. And it's because of the Bible that, again, I, and initially it was, oh, well, Israel is a place where women have equal rights. The Christian population is growing, unlike anywhere else in the Middle East. It's a democracy, blah, blah, blah. But then when I started reading Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, it's like there is something happening here. So if you don't mind, I want to take us on a quick little Bible study. Give me three or four minutes. I'm only doing this because this is what totally changed everything for me. Actually, a, uh, a friend of mine who lives outside Jerusalem pointed this out. So I'm going to basically share what he shared with me. And if you're watching, Shalom Bachi. Uh, I, uh, I miss you, and I wish to be back in Jerusalem soon. But basically, okay, here, here's, how, here's, the, here's how it starts. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, if I could have seen the Red Sea part, I would always believe, right? Like, if I could see a miracle like the 10 plagues and the Exodus, God, just show me something that miraculous, I would have no doubts. If I could see what, what's described in the book of Exodus, then anything that came my way, I would believe in God. So I think... What's really interesting in Jeremiah 16, verse 14, this is what God says. However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Pause. What does that mean? It means to the ancient world, God identified himself as what? As the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. The entire planet knew this little tribe as that God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. But it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, meaning what I'm about to do, what I'm going to do eventually, is going to be so much bigger that I'm going to be identified as that. So you're, you're waiting for this, this Red Sea moment. No, no, no. What I'm about to do is going to make the Red Sea look tame. What I'm about to do is going to make Exodus look tame. I'm going to be identified to the planet as the God who did this. So what is he going to do one day that's going to be a bigger deal? He says, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries 
where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. But then the question has to be asked, does God really care about a certain people group being in a certain part of land? Does God really care about real estate? And the answer to that, I think, comes in Ezekiel 36. And it says, wherever they went, meaning the Jewish people, verse 20, wherever they went among the nations, they profane my holy name. So the Jewish people wake up in Brooklyn or in Poland, and somehow their presence there uh, throughout history has, has kind of profaned the name of God. That's, that's a pretty harsh thing for God to say. But here he explains, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, meaning whatever, for some reason, when God's people are in his land, it somehow redeems the name of God. And whenever they're not there, it makes, it profanes his name. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Check it out. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through your through you before your eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. Lastly, Eric, because I want to hear your thoughts on all this. The question has to be asked, why? why? Okay, so God's name is profaned. If, if, when, they're, when they're not there, it's redeemed. It's shown holy when they are there. Why? And the, I think the, the answer to that finally comes in Psalm 105 from 8 to verse 11. You will not find a verse in Scripture with more promises attached to it than this one, meaning that if God can go back on this promise, then any promise in Scripture that you're hanging on to, that you've built your life on, isn't worth the paper that it's written on. And what is that promise? He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. Think about that. Remembers, covenant, forever, promise, thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. I mean, God is doubling down and tripling down. This promise has so many adjectives attached to it. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So you have remembers, covenant forever, thousand generations, promise, covenant, decree, everlasting. Here it is. To you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. So if God can go back on that, then he can go back on any other promise. So basically, what's all that mean? I think it means this, that when you're walking around the modern state of Israel, now this we can get into the geopolitics, we'll talk about the Palestinians, all that stuff, we'll talk about borders and security, whatever you want to talk about. But when you're walking around the modern state of Israel, what are you walking in? You're walking in a certificate on Google Earth. You're walking into a trophy on the map that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob keeps his promises and he keeps his covenants and that the God that we serve is alive and active. And I think that's why the whole world hates it so much. It's because here you go onto your atlas, onto Google Earth, and you see a living, breathing example. Our God keeps his promises that the Bible is almost, not almost, it is validated by this thing that we see. So when you're walking in Jerusalem, you're walking in a miracle. You're walking in an impossible outcome that would only happen if there was some sort of miraculous God behind it. And there you are walking in Tel Aviv, 
and you think to yourself, I don't need to see a Red Sea part. This is the Red Sea parting. This is that miracle that was been promised. And so to me, not that I have doubts on my faith anymore because I've, you know, I'm really into apologetics, but when I used to, I would just see the, the Israel on the map and think to myself, wow, God did it. Our God is alive and he is active and he keeps his promise and he keeps his covenant. And so we can, we can see that as uh, a confidence builder for your faith. But Eric, I, uh, I obviously want to hear more of your personal thoughts as to why you get excited to share Israel uh, with other people. Yeah, Rods. First of all, I love that breakdown. You could be my pastor on Sunday, my friend. <laughs> that was an awesome biblical breakdown. And amen. And let me just say, and it's interesting, whenever I think of my faith too, I think Israel's existence today, it's miraculous against all odds, modern existence is proof of the existence of God. And I say that, number one, for the reasons, the scriptural reasons you just laid out. But number two, think about this, and everyone should really wrap their heads around this, that the people of Israel largely were expelled from their land, from the land of Israel for some 2,000 years. Now, there was always a Jewish presence in the land. Many times it was very, very small. But even in the 1850s, Jerusalem had a Jewish majority. Nonetheless, by and large, the Jewish people were scattered to the ends of the earth, just as the Bible said was going to happen. But after nearly 2,000 years, out of the immediate ashes of the Holocaust, just three years, Israel reborn 1948, just three years after the end of the Holocaust, the Jewish people return and they reestablish a nation in a sea of enemies. I mean, from the very birth of the nation of Israel in 1948, it was literally invaded by surrounding Arab armies. But Israel, despite all of that, who ever heard of such a thing for a people to be expelled from their land for nearly 2,000 years and then come back and continue to not only survive but thrive in the face of overwhelming, massive, massive odds? Israel is the size of the state of New Jersey. Another quick reminder there, surrounded by a sea of hundreds of millions of mostly enemies. And then you have the Hebrew language, Raj, which was largely dormant for some 24, 2,500 years, the Hebrew language being essentially born again and being used in the modern-day vernacular of the people of Israel. So I consider all that, and I think of the words of one rabbi who said that when Israel was reestablished in 1948, it got a whole lot harder to be an atheist, precisely, Raj, because of the promises of God, which you laid out so eloquently He's a promise-keeping God. I think of the book of, uh, the book of Amos. God says, I have returned them to their land. The people of Israel have returned to their ancient and ancestral homeland, never, key word there, never to be uprooted again. As you said, Raj, the promises God has made to Israel, and we see them playing out right now in real time before our very eyes, are eternal. What part of eternal and forever do the enemies of Israel and the replacement theology types not understand. God is very clear. That is a perfect transition to what I want to talk about next, which is exactly that. The pushback would be this thing called replacement theology. First off, what is that? And in your opinion, why is it wrong? Replacement theology, in essence, means that the church, uh, particularly the Gentile church, has replaced Israel, the nation state of Israel, and the people of Israel 
in God's promises. You and I believe that God has made eternal promises to Israel and the Jewish people, many of which have not been fulfilled, which are, but which are coming. Uh, but the replacement theology types believe, many of them, I don't want to paint with a massively broad brush, but look, many believe that the Jewish people rejected Jesus by and large, although, helpful reminder, the first followers of Jesus were all Jewish. Uh, Christianity in the early days was considered a Jewish sect, a breakaway sect from Judaism. Uh, but nonetheless, the replacement theology types say, look, the Jews rejected Jesus. In return, God has now rejected the Jews. He's done with the Jewish people. All those promises that you named, Raj, that God made to Israel, they have now been projected onto the church. Now the church, the body of Christ, has picked up all of those promises. We are the new chosen people. Well, a few things there. Number one, we serve a very big God, and he can have a great and awesome plan for the church, for the body of Christ, which he does, but he can also have a great and mighty plan for the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. Again, he's a big God, and the two aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the Bible is very clear that, and Paul talks about this. I think of Romans yep. chapter 10, 11, 12, Raj, which I know you know very well. Uh, Paul says, we as Gentile believers owe a great debt to the Jewish people, and we are grafted in. Mm -hmm. We are grafted in. Uh, so the Jewish people, without the Jewish people, without them, without the message of the gospel coming through the Jewish people, without the Messiah coming through the line of King David, through the Jewish people, the line of the tribe of Judah, you and I wouldn't be sitting here right now. So we owe an awesome debt to the Jewish people, number one. But number two, Paul is very clear that God is not done with the Jewish people. Paul says his fervent desire is that all of Israel would be saved, but he's very emphatic. And he says, is God done with the Jewish people? And I quote, depending on your translation, but Paul says, certainly not. All Israel will be saved. Now, I know there's many interpretations of that, of course, but Paul's very clear. Under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is very clear. God's not done with the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And if that wasn't enough, just go verse by verse, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Joel, Zechariah, the list goes on and on. And by the way, Jesus a Jewish rabbi from the Galilee region of Israel, when he returns, he's not setting his foot down in Berlin, D.C., New York City, or Moscow. He will set his foot down in Jerusalem, which is the capital, the ancient and ancestral capital of the Jewish state. Well, if this TV thing doesn't work out for you, I'm going to your church because you get me fired up. But uh, <laughs> when it comes to the Jewishness of of this book, I, you know, I was talking to this guy. I don't want to call him out because I won't. But he... Yeah, anti-Semitic a little bit, but he's a Christian guy. And I was kind of walking him through the Jewishness of Jesus, and it really shook him. I was like, how do you not know this? And it's like, okay, listen, we don't idolize the Jewish people. We don't idolize the nation state of Israel. We don't worship these things. It's just, again, it's a trophy. It's, it's, a, it's a certificate to God's goodness and his covenant-keeping promise. But if you look at this book, Basically, every single thing in here, besides maybe Luke and Acts, was written by a Jewish person. You know, if you talk to someone who's Jewish, a non-believer in, in, in Yeshua of Nazareth, and you give them the New Testament over and over and over again, what you hear, first off, they probably never read it, but if they do, what's the thing you hear? Wow, 
this New Testament book guy, man, this this is really Jewish sounding. And to your point, at the end, at the end, when the, when when the curtains are closing in the Book of Revelation, Jesus isn't called, you know, the Christian missionary homie. He's called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. I mean, you couldn't get more Jewish sounding than that. And so, even in Scripture, like I don't even know how we. I mean, I I know how we got to the to the holiday of Easter, but in Scripture, he's called the Passover Lamb from Genesis to Revelation, all sixty six books. This is a a Jewish, a Jewish book. And to your point, in Romans 9, 10, 11, it's almost like Paul knew that this conversation was going to happen, right? Oh, so God rejected his people. And then Paul, in the most emphatic words possible, absolutely not. You know, when you um, when you set foot in Caesarea, which is like eh, an hour north of Tel Aviv, what's really interesting, and you know, we had our tour guide kind of point this out. He said, you know, when, when Peter... Uh, was coming up to uh, meet Cornelius and basically open up the early church to Gentiles. Because at that point, every follower of Yeshua of Nazareth was Jewish. And so what's really interesting is here you are in this place where the gospel opened up to the Gentile world and Cornelius becomes kind of the first official member of the church outside of the Jewish people. But we always start our tour there because at the time, 2,000 years ago, the followers of Jesus, the church said, hey, as Jewish people, what do we do with these Gentiles? Now, 2,000 years later, I'm taking a bunch of Gentiles to Caesarea. And the question is, hey, as Gentiles, what do we do with the Jewish people? And so it's interesting how things have flipped. So I guess walking through some of the landmines of, well, they rejected Jesus or you know, why should you put these people so highly elevated? How do you respond to comments that have veiled anti-Semitism in them, but really are just trying to get to why, why should we as Christians even care anymore? Yeah, number one, let me just say about Caesarea, a, a unique place for Gentile, the Gentiles in the church, in that, as you mentioned, Cornelius, obviously Peter came to him there, first Gentile convert that we know of, uh, to Christianity, first Gentile follower of Jesus. But another key point, Paul, he departed from the port in Caesarea to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So an amazing place, Caesarea, uh, in the timeline of the church and the history of the church, especially for Gentile believers. Uh, in terms of the kind of, at times, veiled anti-Semitism and the questioning and the doubting, why should we care about Israel? The simplistic answer is because God says so. It's throughout the Bible, basically from the first page to the last page of the word of God. It's essentially the history of the Jewish people from creation up until the time of Jesus. Yes, there are many Gentile appearances, I know that, but in its essence, this is a profoundly Jewish book. Why should we care? Well, number one, the Messiah himself, Jesus, the, the Son of God, Jewish. And again, and you can see this in the Gospels. You mentioned it, Raj, a profoundly Jewish book. Jesus, you know, look, he celebrated Hanukkah. The I Last was Supper was a Passover to, dinner. I was just about to bring that up because I always grew up thinking, oh, well, not, not thinking, but it kind of comes across like that, that somehow Christmas and Hanukkah compete with each other. Or like, it's almost like there's like a little awkwardness. And it's like, I was reading the Gospel and it's, wait a second, Jesus is in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. They're not competing at all. Yeah, a great point, Rod. The Gospel of John makes that clear. The Feast of Dedication, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Last Supper is a, is a Passover Seder. It's a Passover dinner. We could go on and on. Uh, Jesus was respectful 
uh, of Jewish custom uh, and the, the Jewish environment of the time that he was living in, uh, no doubt. But why should we care? We could take it verse by fer- verse by verse. One that I love, just laying down the gauntlet here, why we should care, and showing clearly that God's promises to the Jewish people are eternal, and why it's kind of a big deal. Israel and God's calculus in his prophetic timeline is kind of a big deal, and then some. I think of the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, and Raj, I think oftentimes this passage is overlooked. God says that a day is coming, a day in the future, which we seem to be fast approaching, where he will bring all people, all nations, down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem. Now, you and I have both been there. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is a valley within a larger valley. It's inside of the Kidron Valley, right outside the old city walls in Jerusalem. God says he'll bring all nations to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and he says, there I will judge them on how they treated my people, my inheritance, Israel because they divided up my land, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have my Bible in front of me, but God says they divided up my land, and essentially they persecuted my people. I don't think it gets any more serious than that. God literally says he will judge nations on how they have treated Israel. So I could say I rest my case, but we could go on and on, and I know we will, but to me that's a big one. Joel 3.2, that I believe the replacement theology types will have a very hard time refuting. Again, it's very black and white. There's really no gray areas there. And I think when it comes to Israel throughout the word of God, God Almighty is very, very clear about where he stands. Has he been at times disappointed in the Jewish people? Without a doubt. Have there been consequences for disobedience? Yes, no doubt. We see that obviously not only in the word of God, but we see it throughout the annals of history. The Jewish people dispersed to the ends of the earth but God is a promise-keeping God. Yes, I've, look, there have been consequences, there's been judgment, there's been repercussions for disobedience, but for my holy name's sake, you haven't earned it, not because of anything you did, none of us has earned it, by the way. We're all sinners, we all need a savior. Preach. And his name is Jesus. But God says, not that you've earned it, but for my holy name's sake, because I have promised again and again throughout my word that there will always be a descendant from the line of David on the throne and that that land is your land eternally. I've given you the title deed to the land of Israel, not because of anything you did, but because of my holy name, for my holy name's sake, and because I am a promise-keeping God, that is why I am bringing you back and I still have a great plan for you. You are the absolute best. I, I wish I could show you my notes because literally after replacement theology, I, ha- I have written Joel 3, 1 through 2. What does that mean? So you are, you are, you're reading my mind. Uh, and I, I think what's hard for people is, why do people not like the Jewish people? What, what is the root of this anti-Semitism? I think there's this, there's this T-shirt that I think is hilarious in Jerusalem that you can buy. And it lists off every civilization and every empire that for some reason has tried to destroy this one people group. The Babylonians tried to massacre the Jewish people. The Egyptians tried to genocide, kill off the Romans, you know, a million people on on the 9th of Av in in the year 70. What is the Nazis? Why does the world from east to west and north to south always seems to come against this one little people group that isn't really evangelizing. They're not doing a whole bunch of uh, proselytizing. They're, they're just 
chilling. What what is it about this people group? And we, I'll, I'll let you answer. That. I really want to hear your yeah. your thoughts on that. But I think what's interesting is where are the Babylonians? Like you said, where are where's the Roman Empire? Where's the Egyptians? Where are the Nazis? And yet, here you have this one little people group for three thousand years worshiping the same God back home in the same place on the same hill using the same language speaking using the same currency that they have been for three millennia I mean it doesn't it just screams of something transcendent but let me get back to the original question why anti-semitism what's going on here I think in its barest essence, Raj, and what you just said is just profound in and of itself. There's something different about this people and this land. Hello, as you just laid out, thousands of years, uh, same holy hill in Jerusalem, same language, same belief system, same monotheistic God, same word of God. I mean, it's just amazing. But I think for that reason, there is such opposition and outright hatred for the Jewish people Number one, they represent, they are proof positive, and you mentioned this earlier, the continued existence of the people of Israel and the state of Israel is proof positive of the existence of the God of Israel. Most of those, I would argue all of those that hate Israel at the end of the day, hate the God of Israel, hate the God of the Bible. Certainly Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranian regime we see today, the neo-Nazi types, these people hate God. I don't think there's any other way to put it. And number two, I think this is a a part of a larger, massive spiritual battle. That's it. And I said, well, you know, it might sound a little simplistic, God versus the devil, but it really is. The devil hates the Jewish people. That's why you see on October 7th, for instance, 2023, an absolute demonic, no other way to describe it there, demonic, satanic rage perpetrated by Hamas on the people of Israel, massacring women, children, the elderly in cold blood in unspeakable fashion, complete atrocities unseen since the days of the Nazis. And why did the Nazis do what they did? This is a spiritual struggle, a massive, perhaps the largest we're facing today. The devil hates Israel and hates the Jewish people because it's in his face every day. Their continued existence and the rebirth of Israel means that yes, God is still on the throne, despite all the madness, and he's still in control. This is a spiritual battle. Paul said, Raj, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against spirits and principalities. This is a massive, demonically inspired onslaught against Israel and the Jewish people at the end of the day. I can name all the stereotypes. Well, people say this and that about the Jewish people, but at the end of the day, this is a spiritual battle. And if we can't grasp that, then we can't grasp the larger prophetic picture. You got me fired up, Eric. You know, um, when it comes to uh, the standing for the Jewish people and for Israel, I think one huge, I hate the fact that we have to do this, but you have to put these little asterisks where it's like, okay, as someone who stays with with the Jewish people in Israel, yes, of course, the nation of Israel has made mistakes. Yes, of course, people in Israel have done things that I disagree with. It's like, are you proud to be American? Well, well, yeah. Do you agree with everything the United States has ever done? Most emphatically, no. Do you think that everything an American's ever done represents your beliefs? Obviously not. But there's this there's this lumping together. What's oh that, that one thing happened? Then you stand for it. Oh, dude, come on. Let's at least be adults about this conversation. And and then then you have to add that other layer into the into the conversation. And we're getting to the geopolitics. I know 
That's why a lot of people are are waiting to hear how does this translate. But I'll, I'll be I'll be completely forthright. I would say half of my best friends in that land are Palestinian, and that that is not mutually exclusive. You can stand and celebrate what God is doing in that land and love the Palestinian people. There's a pastor that we both are friends with in Bethlehem, and he says you can't hate the Arab and love the Jew, and you can't love the Jew and hate the Arab. God is is the father of all these people. So to celebrate the rebirth of Israel does not mean that you hate anyone. Quite contrary to that, you know, you have uh, Arab members of the Supreme Court, you have Arab members of the Knesset. Obviously, we want we want peace and harmony in that area. For my friends, I, I, have, I have dear friends who live in Bethlehem and Ramallah, and I, I, I want what's best for them. And the thing is, a lot of those people, when the camera's turned off and there's no microphones, they'll say a lot of things, uh, privately that they won't say publicly. Uh, not not to say that, you know, I, I've had friends who have had really bad experiences with the IDF, and that's that's totally fine. And I think what what's what's hard for people to kind of contextualize is, oh, well, if you support the rebirth of the state of Israel, that somehow means you wish ill, you wish harm, you wish pain or something on the Palestinian people, I, and this is where we're, it's going to get it's going to get a little dicey. But it's important because I want to keep this biblical. Because yes, geopolitics, we could have a long discussion about about the conflict. Trust me, you and I have been in this for you know collectively almost thirty years. There are so many gray areas and complications and lines in the sand and 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 anecdotes and all that stuff. But let's just keep it as, as biblical as we can. How do you respond to oh? You support the Jewish people. You support the modern state of Israel. That means that you are anti-so-and-so. I think on a personal level, I can just speak to personal experience, Raj, as you just did. Number one, I don't want to say some of my best friends are Palestinian, but it's true. Many dear friends I work with in the land are Palestinian. But on a personal level, even more importantly, a Palestinian pastor helped lead me to the Lord. Uh, his name is Tassada. He's a Palestinian who once was vehemently anti-Israel. He worked for Yasser Arafat of the PLO, and he was Arafat's limo driver. He was also a sniper. He had Jewish blood on his hands. Long story short, in 2009, I was working for CBN. I sat down with Tassada for a long interview. I heard his testimony, his life story. Incredible was a Palestinian Muslim who came to Jesus and became a friend uh, to the Jewish people, which was unheard of. He hated the Jewish people with a passion, hated the nation of Israel, and wanted to see it pushed into the sea. He's got an incredible testimony. At the end of our interview, he gave me his book. It was called Once an Arafat Man. And he said, hey, brother, read my book. Now, like you, I'm reading all the time. And I said, well, I just heard his life story. I interviewed him for 30 minutes. Why do I have to read his book too? Raj, that book sat on my desk at CBN for four months, one lazy August weekend in 2009, I said, you know what? What the heck? I'm going to read Tassada's book. I took it home. I devoured it over the course of a weekend. And by the time I closed that book on Monday evening, August 24th, I believe, 2009, I closed that book. I was sitting on my bed. I called my wife into the room and said, hey, I was very excited. I just want you to know I'm going to get a whole lot more serious about Jesus. That book Wow. sealed the deal for me. Why? This Palestinian former Muslim, his story of how he followed the Holy Spirit 
wherever it would lead him, to the most dangerous places in Gaza. He was a Christian entering Gaza uh, to do mission work. Just amazing. But not only that, Raj, he was under threat of death from his family. His brother put a death sentence on his head because he converted to Christianity. I was afraid personally and nervous. I'm sad to say now and embarrassed to say now. I said, wow, what will everyone think of me? The people I grew up with, my family, if I become one of those crazy born-agains, a born-again Christian. So I was nervous about that. What will people's perception be? And Tass, again, this guy was a a radical Islamist in many ways, and his family, at least his brother, wanted to kill him, and yet he still gave his life to Jesus. I said, if this Palestinian man can do that, I can do do that. So to answer your question for me, very personal, if I rejected the Palestinian people, I would have never interviewed this Palestinian man, and I would have Uh-oh. thrown his book in the trash. So God has a great plan for the Arab people writ large, not just the Palestinians, but God was very clear with Isaac and Ishmael that, look, God told Hagar, I will also make a great nation of Ishmael, mm. and he has. So look, you, you, I, it's very true. You can't love Israel and hate the Arab. And my good friend Tassada, who I just mentioned, he says the same exact thing. Wow. I, I did not know that story, and I've known you for a long time. That's really powerful. Um, so I I want to take this, again, we're going to start to, 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 to make it a little bit more geopolitical. Um, but if you're watching this video, and you're a skeptic, and, and you're just like, okay, here's, here's a couple of those rah-rah Israel people, those Jesus freaks. Um, I get it. I get it. I mean, I, I was once in your shoes. Just because you've heard of a lot of information doesn't mean it's true. Eric and I have been there collectively about 60 times. But more importantly than that, I want to I want to bring up one caveat, which is Eric and I have a good friend who's who's now passed. His name was Irving Roth. And he was a Holocaust survivor. He went through Auschwitz. What f- just fascinated me was he would say, education without a moral compass precipitated the Holocaust. But I do think understanding that you might not understand it all, people call the at the West Bank, that's probably the most PC version of the West Bank. Some, on this side, you could, people say, oh, that's Palestine. On this, on, on this side, it's that's Judea and Samaria. That's the biblical heartland of, of Israel. Here's what's interesting. Let's just call it the West Bank. If the West Bank were to become Palestine tomorrow, what's really interesting is that I think it's something like 80 to 90%. Think about this concept. 80 to 90% of the Old Testament of the Jewish Bible happened there. It didn't happen in Tel Aviv. It didn't happen in Haifa. I mean, it did, but the majority of the the meat, uh, Hebron, uh, Shechem, Shiloh, uh, Bethlehem, that's all in the West Bank. So it's it's very, very complicated. And so to tweet about it or to read a tweet is not going to give you the full context of understanding. So my question to you, Eric, is if education isn't the answer, if, if you just read a bunch of books, well, you might not actually get the whole full picture. If someone here is is genuinely interested in, okay, maybe I don't have the full picture. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I, I see what these two guys are saying. I can tell that they're passionate about it. I can tell that they've invested a lot of their lives in this thing. Where should someone go if they want to understand what God is up to in the Holy Land? Well, I think when you approach Israel and the entire issue, Raj, and and you said it earlier, the world, not just the church, in terms of debating over the place of Israel in the church and in God's plan, but the world in general, 
I would use the word, is obsessed with this tiny sliver of land, the size, again, the size of the state of New Jersey. A good place to go in terms of just your understanding, I think, of Israel, its place in the world, and why you should stand with Israel if you are a freedom-loving person. Look, if you are right now on a college campus marching for Hamas and tearing down the posters of Israeli hostages who are being held in the clutches of Hamas in Gaza, I'm not sure how much I can help you. Uh, You might need a road to Damascus-type transformation or conversion. Uh, But in the meantime, for any rational, reasonable-thinking person who may be on the fence and is saying, okay, why Israel? I'll I'll bring it to you first from just a purely secular perspective. Uh, Number one, Israel is really the first line of defense for the free world. The same radical forces that want to destroy Israel, wipe it off the map, want to destroy Judeo-Christian civilization and the West, Western civilization, overall writ large. Israel is in the belly of the beast, quite literally, the canary in the coal mine, fighting the good fight for all of us. And don't kid yourself, if Israel were to disappear and the likes of the Iranian regime, Hamas, got their way and pushed the Zionist entity, as they call it, into the sea, don't believe for a second that they would then just pack up their bags and go home, that they'd say, our work is done here. Israel's gone. Now we can go back to living peaceful lives. No. Where are they coming next? That's not alarmism. It's not sensationalism. It's fact. The Iranian regime, for instance, refers to Israel as the little Satan, but they refer to the United States as the great Satan. That is not by coincidence. So that's number one, Israel fighting the good fight for all of us. And if Israel goes down, we all go down. I've read the book to the back, so I know that's not going to happen. But a number two reason to support Israel, to stand with Israel from a purely secular perspective, look, Israel is a free and open and tolerant Western-style democracy in a sea of tyranny. You want to talk about free and fair elections? Israel just went through uh, five elections in the span of a little over four years. If that's not democracy, I don't know what else is. And, Raj, when we talk about the Israeli political system, look— There are Arab members of the Knesset. There are Arab political parties. There was an Arab member of Israel's coalition not too long ago, its governing coalition. Arabs in Israel, yes, they vote. And that's not surprising, Rod. You and I have been to Israel many, many times, and we both know that Israel may just be, in particular Jerusalem, the most diverse place on earth. Put aside the fact that you have Jews literally of every shade who've come from Europe, Africa, Asia, and beyond. But number two, we've got Arabs, we've got Jews, Christians, we've got Muslims, all together in this one massive melting pot known as Israel. So when I'm told that Israel is an apartheid state, Mm -hmm. I have to scratch my head. Ask the Muslim worshipers at the mosques in Israel, ask the Christians worshiping at churches in Israel, and ask those Arab members of the Knesset, what they think about that. Number three, look, Israel is a technological and scientific powerhouse punching far above its weight in every area. And I say without hesitation, Raj, that if a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's is found in the near future, God willing, it will very likely be found in Israel. God has gathered the genius, the ingenuity of the Jewish people in this one tiny patch of land and they are literally blessing the world. You know, we talk about Genesis 12, 3. God says, 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. History has borne that out, and you, have, you and I have laid it out during this conversation. But we often forget about the second part of that, that verse. God says, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And through you, Israel, mm. all nations on earth will be blessed. Hey, there's been no greater number of Nobel Prize winners than the Jewish people. The Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, came through the Jewish people. That's the ultimate blessing to the nations. But in a, in a practical sense, from a purely secular perspective, the scientific, medical, high-tech breakthroughs, they go on and on when it comes to Israel and the Jewish people. Lastly, why should you stand with Israel? Because God said so. Come on. Come on. I, uh, I've, I've tried as much as we can on, in this conversation to, to stick with facts uh, and 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 not make it uh, gray area, but I want to give one one personal uh, opinion, um, which is eh, this this is, might ruffle some feathers, but whatever. Here we go. I think a lot of people in the West assume that everyone sees the world the way that we do, and that is simply not the case. My family, my dad's side of the family is from India, and in Hinduism there is a caste system, and if you're born in the lowest lower caste system, I mean now it's it's changing, but there's nothing you can do to exit said caste. That you are you are the untouchables. You are on the lower rung of the of the of the of the ladder, and that's just how you are. Or in you know Islam, you talk about what 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 uh, Hamas stands for. They 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 say it proudly that we value death like the Jews value life. If it's not that's not my quote. That's their quote. And so the idea that everyone has this view of the world that that you have, it's just it's just not true. And so. I, I heard this rabbi speaking in, in Jerusalem, and it, and it was fascinating. He said, why do people hate the Jewish people? What is it about it? And he's like, it's, you, you have all these tropes, you know, oh, they control this and the money, that, and this, they kill Jesus. They, no, no, no. At the end of his presentation, he said this, it's because of the message of the Jewish people. And what does he mean by that? So in one of the Hitler Youth songs, it, this blew my mind, Eric. In one of the Hitler Youth songs, it says... Something like this, quote, sort of, quote, like this. It says, we, you know, got to get rid of the Jewish people because, quote, we want to be pagans again. Meaning, we don't want the value system of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is that value system that we take so for granted, that we're so inundated with in the West, that we don't realize its, its origin is this, this book, that all of us are created equal, that we are made in the image of God, that if you're a foreigner, if you're crippled, if you're lame, if you're a widow, if you're an orphan, doesn't matter. You have been given intrinsic, inherent value. If you're handicapped, if you name the thing, that doesn't matter because you have the, uh, you, you are being created in the image of God. The idea of the Jewish people is the concept and the value of life that comes against tyrants and dictators and, and people that would wish ill on this world. And so we have a, a few minutes left. I, I want to I tee you off, and you or, already have, but you've already mentioned this, but why geopolitically as a Christian, I mean, and I, and I say it that way, why geopolitically as a Christian do you think it's important for my friend here to stand with Israel? I think you just pretty much summed it up in that you mentioned that really stunning not surprising, but still stunning to hear it in 2023, and it really makes a lot of makes sense of a lot of what we've seen historically. That Hitler Youth lyric, "We want to be pagans again," and I say that, Raj, because right now you're seeing what that would look like in the form of Hamas on October 7th. Look, 
Hamas are modern-day Nazis. This was pagan-level barbarism. I mean, literally, that we saw the barbarians carry out, raping, pillaging, beheading, burnings, looting, all, the whole nine yards. That's what Hamas did on October 7th. That's what the Nazis did. Now, the Nazis were a bit more creative in trying to hide it, whereas Hamas is full-on paganism gleefully. They're radical jihadists, but essentially this is barbarism, what they did, gleefully celebrating the beheading of toddlers, the rape of women, the uh, ravaging and kidnapping of Holocaust survivors, dragging them back into Gaza. So that was Hitler's vision right there on October 7th. That's what he imagined. Do people really want to return to that? Mm. I guess that's what I'd lay out to people in terms of why to stand with Israel in a geopolitical sense. Look, you don't have to agree with everything Israel does, but let me tell you a little something about the folks on the other side of the ledger. Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranian regime, increasingly Vladimir Putin's Russia, North Korea, the list goes on. So look at who opposes Israel. The most evil forces in the world all agree on one thing, they all hate Israel and the Jewish people. Do you really want to be a part of these demonstrations in cities, I'm sad to say, across the United States, across the Western world, and on college campuses right now, which are literally celebrating Hamas, which are calling for an end of Israel, which are calling for a Palestinian state from the river uh, to the sea, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Guess what? Israel's there, so that means Israel would disappear. Hello? Do you really want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a part of tearing down on street corners the pictures of Israeli hostages who are held in Gaza? Look, Israel's not perfect. No nation is. But I can tell you, the people of Israel love life. And the God of Israel has a special plan for that people and for that nation. Again, look at Israel. Look at the side of Israel, who's aligned with Israel, and who opposes Israel. I call Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran— the Gathering Storm Coalition. It is indeed a gathering storm against the West, against freedom, against Israel. So look, it's increasingly kind of a sheep and goats situation, Raj. Choose your side. When it comes to Israel, there's no gray areas. Again, God is clear on that. And world events and the way the chess pieces are moving on the board, that's also bearing it out. Sunni Arab nations, the Abraham Accords nations, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, even Saudi Arabia, seem to have come down on Israel's side. But look across the other side. Some of the most wicked, demonic forces on earth, the Iranian regime, Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and the BDS types who want to boycott, divest from, sanction Israel, which is basically the destruction of Israel just by other means, not using guns and bombs. If that's who you want to cast your lot with, good luck. But I'll stay on the side of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the side of all that is good and true, and I'll stand on Israel's side. Amen, amen. Standing on the side of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and understanding it from context, understanding that there is compassion, that there is truth, that there is there is a way forward that is bigger than a tweet or a soundbite, that to stand with the Jewish people doesn't mean you're anti-anything. To see that what God's up to in Israel doesn't mean that you hate anyone. Quite the contrary. There is a space for my friend here who's watching this to be, to just be encouraged that, there, that, that God can be up to something and you can also uh, have compassion, have love, um, and, and know that you're standing 
uh, on something that is truly miraculous. Eric, you are the man. Thank you so much, Achi. I, I, my, my Hebrew isn't the greatest. Achi, brother, I'm trying. Uh, but shalom, brother, I love you so much. Shalom. Toda Rabbah. Thank you Toda very much, Raba. Raj. God bless, my friend. Thanks for having me.